to the eighth and final episode of the EMAG Cast miniseries, Climate Change and Human Health. My name is Katie, and through the course of eight episodes, we've gone through the many ways that climate change impacts human health. We've already discussed heat, cold, extreme weather, infectious disease, air quality, food, water, and climate migration. Today, we will explore how climate change is affecting various populations in different ways. This mini-series is a part of a scholarly project to explore podcasts as a climate change education tool for healthcare professionals. There's a very short survey that I hope you'll fill out after listening. It should take you no more than three minutes and would be a huge help to the project. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Through the last seven episodes, we've analyzed a number of ways that climate change will impact human health. And in these episodes, we've noted that not every person, community, or even country will experience these impacts equally. There are so many factors that influence the way climate change can affect someone's health, and these factors create a complex and dynamic web that can make it difficult to predict exactly how each individual will experience them. However, we can identify some trends in these factors that remain consistent despite the numerous other variables. Climate change and human health data strongly indicate that adverse health outcomes will be most prevalent in low-income countries and communities, among socially disadvantaged individuals living and working in urban areas, incarcerated individuals, elderly people, children, and those living in coastal regions. Additionally, those who experience the most negative outcomes of climate change are those who are contributing the least to its progression. According to World Health Organization data, in the last 30 years, the populations who have been the least responsible for causing greenhouse gas emissions have suffered the greatest increase in diseases attributable to the warming of the planet. In 2004, the per capita greenhouse gas emissions in the United States were 6 metric tons per year. Japan and many Western European countries were between 2 and 5 metric tons per year. And developing countries averaged just about 0.6 metric tons per year, with over 50 countries below 0.2. Climate change is not just experienced by the countries emitting the most, it is experienced on the global scale. This poses an ethical dilemma in which many communities and countries are involuntarily exposed to the adverse effects of climate change, driving the largest health inequity of our time. The imbalance in emissions can be quantified as a natural debt, which is the cumulative depleted CO2 emissions per capita. The concept of natural debt as a cumulative number is a more accurate representation for the responsibility of climate change than a yearly emission number, because while many countries are emitting greenhouse gases in increasing quantities, which is slowly closing the gap in yearly emissions, there are some countries, like the U.S., who have been emitting in massive quantities since the Industrial Revolution and have accumulated a tremendous natural debt. Not only do poor and developing countries carry the smallest responsibility for climate change, but they often carry the largest burden of global warming. Additionally, these populations tend to experience negative side effects from the major approaches to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. For example, biofuels seem like a great alternative to fossil fuels. However, using corn for fuel can drive up food prices, an economic burden that is placed largely on those who are already struggling with food insecurity. From 1950 to 2000, the World Health Organization analyzed cumulative CO2 emissions compared to four climate-related health outcomes, malaria, malnutrition, diarrhea, and inland flooding fatalities. This analysis found that the countries who have already been experiencing the negative health outcomes related to climate change were the ones released responsible. For example, 70 to 80 percent of malaria occurs in Africa, a continent with some of the lowest per capita emissions. 
Children bear a tremendous amount of malaria disease burden, and 25% of all-cause mortality in children under 4 years old is attributed to malaria. Malaria is also strongly related to poverty, with malaria-endemic countries demonstrating a much lower rate of economic growth compared to countries without malaria. Globally, coastal communities are at an increased risk of poor health outcomes due to climate change. 13% of the world's urban population lives in low-elevation coastal zones that are at risk of rising sea levels, including more frequent and more intense hurricanes, cyclones, storm surges, and flooding. As we discussed in the extreme weather episode, these storms and floods can damage or destroy infrastructure, including roads, housing, water, and sanitation systems, with poor urban households at the greatest risk. Poor communities often live in areas where buildings are less safe, have weaker construction designs, and are less capable of withstanding these insults. The flooding in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina is an example of how poor communities in coastal regions experience more of the devastating effects of extreme weather events than their more affluent neighbors. Low-income neighborhoods are less likely to have storm drains, culverts, and levees to protect from floodwaters. After Katrina, the majority of drowning deaths were poor or disadvantaged individuals, often due to lack of access to adequate transportation for evacuation. In addition to increased deaths, those without access to transportation experienced worse long-term health outcomes. Project Risk, a study that evaluated the resilience and survivors of Katrina, found that trauma exposure was much lower in people who had access to cars, which enabled them to evacuate when, where, and with whom they wanted. Additionally, poor communities often lack financial resources to rebuild these structures and the political influence to secure policies that may protect them. Regardless of proximity to coastlines, urban environments experience worse heat health outcomes due to the urban heat island effect we discussed in the first episode. These heat islands result in higher average daily temperatures due to lack of shade and vegetation, as well as dark, heat-absorbing road and building surfaces. Low socioeconomic status and minority ethnic groups are statistically more likely to live in neighborhoods that lack green spaces. Effective urban design can help mitigate these impacts. Examples of green urban design include systems for safe public transit, including safe walking and biking routes, bike lanes, public transit corridors, and transit hubs. Additionally, ensuring sufficient parks, green spaces, and trees dispersed along sidewalks can help regulate urban temperatures and provide carbon sinks for some of the emissions of the city. Unfortunately, as green urban development has become more trendy, it has resulted in a phenomenon called eco-gentrification. As urban environments become more green and desirable to live in, they attract wealthier, typically white, gentrifiers. The cost of living in these areas rises and ends up forcing out the lower-income residents of color who have been living in these areas for generations. These families are often forced to move to areas with deteriorating environmental and social conditions. The benefit of these green neighborhood spaces can be misleading, as eco-gentrifiers often have large, consumption-driven carbon footprints that erase any benefit that the public transit or green energy systems may have had. The result is the wealthy further benefit from climate mitigation strategies, while poor and working-class communities continue to suffer from the adverse outcomes of climate change. It is necessary that all green urban planning measures have the interests of low-income groups at heart and ensure equitable access amongst all groups. Otherwise, current health inequities will be further exacerbated by the implementation of green adaptations. In addition to living in urban heat islands, many low-income laborers, such as construction workers, factory manufacturers, and farm laborers, often work in hot outdoor environments with very little heat protection. 
Adaptation of workplace and labor regulations can minimize the dangerous effects of heat for workers. Workplace adaptations include proper ventilation and cooling systems within factories and other indoor workspaces, using building materials that insulate the workplace from the outdoor environment, and promoting the use of renewable and sustainable energy to fuel the building and activities that occur inside of it. For outside laborers, the regulations will be more important. These regulations should include modified schedules to minimize the amount of labor and heat-producing activity during the hottest parts of the day, shortening shifts with high labor demands, providing shaded or cooled spaces, and guaranteeing sufficient breaks and access to fluids and electrolyte replenishment. Unfortunately, in the United States, many of these laborers work in what is often referred to as the informal economy, which operates outside of what most labor policies cover. Expanding occupational health legislation, policies, and services to all workers would allow for the protection of more individuals under current legislation. Within urban populations lies a subpopulation of individuals who are incarcerated. Most incarcerated people in the United States come from a small group of neighborhoods, often communities of color, in major U.S. cities. Once incarcerated, these individuals are moved to prisons that are primarily located in rural areas of the United States, on land that was previously used for agriculture or industrial pursuits. The prison industrial complex perpetuates the cycle of organized abandonment as police use arrest quotas and quality of life ordinances to justify the arrest and displacement of hordes of people. These prisons are often staffed by people who live in poor rural communities. In return for the placement of a correctional facility in a community, prison boosters promise jobs to the members who are living there. Both the rural and the urban communities at opposite ends of the prison industrial complex have suffered from its expansion rather than receiving the support and resources to reinvest and cultivate their communities. How does this relate to climate change? Well, first of all, the individuals and communities who are targeted by the criminal justice system are the same ones who often see the worst of climate change's damage. As we discussed, eco-gentrification has caused the displacement of many poor and working-class residents, often communities of color. These individuals often end up on the street, push the periphery of their cities, or incarcerated. The Albina District in Portland offers us an example of eco-gentrification close to home. Historically, the Albina District was home to much of Portland's Black community. However, since the 1970s, the percentage of Black residents in the Albina District has been declining, going from around 85% in 1970 to around 30% in 2010. Much of this population displacement is attributable to the eco-gentrification that is virtually inescapable in the city of Portland. When communities are displaced, incarceration rates go up, further threatening the health and safety of the displaced populations. During climate disasters, incarcerated people are often ignored. For example, during Hurricane Katrina, the inmates in the Orleans Parish Prison were left without power, water, food, and ventilation, and no way to escape the floods. Inmates were chest-deep in water, still incarcerated. Inmates at the Rikers Island Jail had a similar experience during Hurricane Sandy and were left without a plan for evacuation despite being in an evacuation zone. Additionally, the carceral system causes direct damage to the environment, often through pollution and contamination of local air and water that then damages nearby wildlife habitats and endangers the plants and animal species living there. The Donaldson Correctional Facility in Kentucky was found to have dumped nearly 800,000 gallons of sewage into nearby creeks in the 2014 Black Warrior Riverkeeper lawsuit. While tackling the climate crisis at the same time as tackling the prison industrial complex can seem intimidating, 
the solution of one actually can help solve the other. By implementing programs to decarbonize the economy, millions of new jobs will be created, offering employment opportunities to the communities on either end of the prison industrial complex, as well as those in between. Currently, one-third of inmates were unemployed when they were sent to prison, and 27% of previously incarcerated individuals are unemployed even years after their release. Additionally, initiatives to promote environmental justice for communities and fully funded social service programs, including housing and healthcare, will support a just transition to a truly sustainable economy. Housing is a human right and is essential to good quality of life and health. Unfortunately, many former incarcerated individuals are excluded from public and private housing, further increasing their chances of being reincarcerated. High-density, low-carbon, beautiful public housing that offers access to green spaces and safe public transit is central to sustainable city design. Finally, instead of pouring public funding into the policing of communities and continuation of the prison industrial complex, reallocating that funding to sustainable environmental and social programs can contribute to community resilience in the face of a changing climate. I'd like to close this episode and the Climate Change and Human Health series with a story. It's the story of the Coley neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, and how this neighborhood is getting a head start on the Green New Deal. Coley is one of Portland's most culturally diverse neighborhoods and is made up of predominantly low-income families. Situated amongst an asphalt plant, automobile salvage lots, and strip malls, the residents of Coley are regularly subjected to industrial pollution. In the middle of Coley sits an empty lot that was once the parking lot of a strip club, but it has since become a meeting site for neighborhood groups. These groups have named the lot Living Coley, and it will soon become a new 140-unit affordable housing complex that will go by the name Las Adelitas, after the women soldiers who fought in the Mexican Revolution. Living Coley and the construction of Las Adelitas are an example of the Green New Deal in action. The housing complex will be constructed using green infrastructure and clean energy design, and it will provide jobs and economic opportunities to the residents of Coley. Much of the construction will be done by a company called Verde Builds and will include green roofs and walls, solar panels, and water reuse systems. The landscaping will be done by Verde Builds and will include stormwater drainage and sustainable landscaping. Verde Builds and Verde Landscaping are branches of Verde, a business that trains and employs local residents to do sustainable construction and landscaping. This program has employed over 200 individuals in the Coley area, providing them with livable wages, medical and dental benefits, and paid training and certification sessions. Coley's motto is sustainability as an anti-poverty strategy, a motto that can be expanded to all just sustainability initiatives. While climate change mitigation strategies are often discussed as if they occur in a vacuum, the truth is that climate change and human health, along with social systems and services at the local, national, and global level, are all extremely intertwined. And when we implement programs and make changes that benefit our environment, they will in turn benefit our society and our world. However, in order to be truly just and to avoid exacerbating inequities, the heart of these programs must be the way they impact the most vulnerable populations. I hope this podcast was informative and thought-provoking. Just one last reminder that this series is a part of a project to look at podcasts as a climate science education tool for healthcare providers, and I would greatly appreciate it if you filled out the survey in the description. It'll only take a minute or two. Additionally, I encourage you to find ways to get involved with environmental justice efforts in your community. No matter how big or small you feel your contribution may be, it is important. Thank you so much for listening.